Hello, welcome back to Minus 16 with me, David Lewis, the podcast where we talk everything Apple. Now, I did have a guest planned for this show, but unfortunately he fell poorly. So hopefully we're going to reschedule that particular interview and guest as soon as he is well enough again. But I had options. Either you could have had me by myself, which had been highly tedious, but luckily I reached out to Hartley Charlton, the Mac Rumors editor who was on with us on the last podcast two weeks ago. And he found some time at very short notice to join us on the podcast this week. So we are going to talk everything about Apple Watch 8 coming out later this year, iPhone 14 and CarPlay. And quite by accident, really, Hartley Charlton finds himself with me once again. Hartley, thank you so much for stepping into the breach. Well, it's my pleasure to join you again. Well, you say that, but uh, <laughs> yes, we, we both know that sometimes planning out podcasts is not the easiest thing. And at the very last minute, I got in touch with Hartley and he said, yep, I can make time for you. And so here we are again, the voice that most people absolutely adore and want to listen to and speaks with far more authority than I. So I intend to keep quiet for the next hour and let you do most of the talking. You can educate us. So although it's kind of the quiet season uh, with regard to Apple, certainly, and everything's really kind of waiting, A, for the MacBook Air to come out sometime next month, you still haven't heard any release dates now, I take it, have you? At Mac Rumors? No, but I, I'd expect it to be a while, possibly oh, at the really? tail end of next month. Oh, you think it could be as late as that, do you? It may well be. They're, they're, the fact that we haven't heard a, an announcement date of the release date so far would indicate that it, it's still a fair, a fair way out. And so that is one highlight on the way. And then, of course, we're really waiting for the iPhone events and the end of the year events, aren't we? So it's a little bit quiet during the summer, but there's still plenty to talk about. And there's a couple of things that have taken my eye and interest uh, since we last spoke a couple of weeks ago, one of which is the development of Apple Watch. Now, I think I mentioned to you last time that oddly, I don't have an Apple Watch, and even odder, I've bought two, but both as presents. So I keep receiving them, but I have to wrap them up and pass them on, which mm. you can imagine how much that hurts. Now, there seems to be some conjecture as to what we think we may be getting later this year. We're pretty certain we're getting an eight. But in what guise or in what form do you think it's going to appear? Because it could be that it's the SE that I hear talked about, which I assume is kind of a, a slimmed down version or a lighter version. Then there's the rugged idea or just a straight iteration and going for the eight. So you're far more knowledgeable on Apple Watch than I. Where do you think it's likely to be going? Well, this year we're expecting three new Apple Watch models for the first time. We're expecting uh, the Series 8, which starts um, at $399, um, which is the sort of mid-range standard Apple Watch. Then the Apple Watch SE, which of which there's only been one so far, which mm -hmm. came out nearly two years ago now, which is designed sort of as an entry level to the Apple Watch lineup. It has slightly fewer health features, um, a slightly uh, inferior display, but it's it's a good all-round device. And it's really just updating that um, for, for, for the sort of modern generation. And then this sort of um, slightly more mysterious, rugged model, um, of which we don't know very much, but other than that it would be, um, well, more rugged and have a, a more uh, impact-resistant casing, um, more uh, shatter-resistant glass. So it would be three separate models for the that first time. My misgiving then, I understood there to be just going to be one watch this year, but I wasn't quite, I was under the impression that we weren't sure what kind of watch it was going to be, but three watches were expected to come out then for the first time. Yes, there there are still questions around whether the rugged model will be a Series Eight. So it could be um, Apple Watch Series Eight Explorer Edition, or right. it, it depends on how they market it. But it will effectively be three different models, likely with slightly different designs, 
Um, and the Apple Watch SE, at least, will have a different chip and likely a different display so that it isn't up to the, the same specification as the main Series 8. So with the Rugged Watch, I'm assuming that's for extreme sports kind of people. If you're doing a lot of that kind of nature work where you don't want to be wearing the watch that could easily get damaged, this presumably is going to be more robust. But given that it's going to presumably have a fairly same design structure, how much more robust can they make it? What will make it extreme? Well, we're not really sure about what form it will take, but my personal hunch is that this will be the Apple Watch with the flat edges that has been rumoured for about two uh, years yes, now. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because not only does it visually just look a lot meaner and more aggressive and more rugged, but it would be much um, more resistant to um, uh, drops and, and breakage. Um, simply because when the, the glass is embedded flush in the chassis, mm -hmm. that's obviously a lot safer um, than when it protrudes as it does at the moment, um, where it's sort of bubble-like and uh, sort of convex. So it would make sense to me that that would be how it was implemented. And I'm now I might be sketchy on my memory here, but thinking back to last year's conference when the seven came out. Did they not show somebody falling off a bike there in an almost rugged kind of manner? Was it not hinting yes. towards where they're leaning? So is the So that was Yeah, so is the 7 yeah, that, still that's not designed for extreme sports. Well, I'm sure Apple would tell you that it was. Um, <laughs> their marketing what certainly played up the increased credentials um, of the Apple Watch Series 7 in terms of how um, rugged it was. And that's because they redesigned the uh, front crystal. So it's it's much physically thicker. So the, the glass um, supposedly shatters a, a lot less. Um, and just the, the, the shape of the, the glass is, um, I think they called it a more robust geometry. That's mm -hmm. how they phrased it. <laughs> Sounds so it Apple be, way of talking, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Um, so I think that it, it possibly uh, is. Um, it, it will. It's got to do more than that, and I struggle to to see how they are really going to sell it as a rugged model. Uh, if it's if it's not just um, a marketing exercise, because I can't I'm assuming fully Garmin understand. and so on have already cornered that market. I mean, Garmin are known for that kind of watch yes. and that kind of device, aren't well, they? Well, that would be the the market they would be they would be targeting. Um, but I don't think that they can really offer that without. Um, a rubberized casing without you know seriously improved um, waterproofing credentials. There's quite a lot they would have to do, and maybe they can do it. But I just I think it's difficult for them to simultaneously say that the main Apple Watch is incredibly rugged, but here's this special rugged model. Have you seen any design CADs or schematics? Do you know what we might expect to see? Is it going to be a big departure in design queue and style? Do you think? If it is this. Um, design with um, flat edges, then it would be quite a significant departure because you would need to be able to tell mm. just visually that it was a it was a it was the rugged model. But I I don't know if it will be somewhat divisive because people will want to buy it on the basis of its aesthetic difference, simply because the Apple Watch has looked almost exactly the same now for seven years. So it would be the first departure from that smooth design. I mean, the, the design was something I was going to finish off talking about when we get there as to what you feel the future of Apple Watch can be. But with the functionality of the extreme, the rugged, whatever we're calling it, I quite like the term rugged, actually, it makes me feel quite manly. But um, <laughs> with that with that watch, will there be much different functionality? I mean, will be there presumably, I don't know, further GPS functionality or something? Because if you're off in the middle of nowhere, uh, I don't know, have you heard of any differences, main differences other than design that they're thinking of implementing? 
No, there don't seem to be any additional software features. We have heard a bit about satellite um, emergency features, but those seem to be across the whole lineup. They would also be coming to the iPhone as mm. well. Um, and that's a, a pretty niche use case for those sorts of features. Um, they're not going to be something that most people will ever be interested in using or even have the opportunity to use. Um, so I, I think it really is just a, it will be a, it will be a, a case of the, um, the, the casing being physically different. And price-wise, have you heard where it's likely to be pitched? No, although if it's offering the same feature set and the same chip, then it probably will be around the same price point, possibly slightly higher to account for um, the, the, the ruggedized design. And I mentioned design just a second ago uh, on your steer, and I'm wondering where it can go. As you said, it's been basically the same for seven years. Clearly, they can't suddenly go into a round face watch because, well, the whole design interface is set up and all the icons are set up for a square face. And I think Google have already made a, a round watch of it. Yeah. So if you were to put you uh, ask you to look into the crystal ball, where do you think Apple's sort of five-year plan, because it's proven, well, it is the most popular watch in the world by sale, isn't it? And where do you think they're looking to go with it? What more can they achieve with it? I don't think the Apple Watch design is going to change significantly um, in the future for several reasons. The first reason you alluded to, which is software, because a round face is impractical for reading text or notifications. Um, the second reason is because Apple's competitors are offering a round design. Um, and the, the new um, Pixel Watch effectively looks like a round Apple Watch. It's almost exactly the same with the crown on the side and the um, the sort of teardrop um, shape of the, the front glass, it's, it's almost exactly the same, just a round version of it. So they're not going to change the design to look like their competitors. So then looking long-term, I can't really see it changing, not least because design consistency is important when they are trying to build a brand and trying to almost market it as a, a fashion item. Mm. If the design was to change like the iPhone was every three years, they wouldn't be able to establish it and make it quite as recognizable as it is. So I think it certainly can get thinner. I think that's something the Apple Watch really could do a lot better is be a lot thinner and a lot lighter because it still feels quite bulky. But beyond that, I, I can't really see too much changing. Maybe the display size will change. Maybe the display will curve slightly more around to the edges, even more than it does with the Series 7. But beyond that, I'm not really too sure what else they could do with it in mind of those limitations. Because uh, where they seem to have absolutely taken a steal on the market is in being a health wearable. I mean, that seems to be, yes, health clearly and fitness rather than health. So it's become very, very popular and almost the forefront of Apple Watch signifies that you're concerned about your health and your fitness and clothes and rings each day and so on. But equally, it's now becoming it looks like it could become very important as a health wearable with well, a constant talk about non-invasive diabetes and blood glucose checks and so on. So clearly, it looks like that could be something that factors into the longer term use of Apple Watch. Yes, I think so. I think that that's where Apple Watch is heading. When Apple Watch was initially marketed, it was marketed more as a fashion statement and a communications device. Mm. But actually, it seems in the long term, it really is going to be for health. And we know that this is the long-term direction, not least because Apple has introduced features such as blood oxygen monitoring, ECG. They seem to be adding a major new health feature roughly every two years. But they're also working very closely with a company called Rockley um, Photo uh, Photonics, I think. 
And that is a, it's a startup company that is invested very heavily in non-invasive optical sensors that are capable of measuring a huge number of different metrics, such as um, blood glucose, blood alcohol, blood pressure. Um, and to be able to get all of that information non-invasively is very impressive and is something that the Apple Watch would be able to uh, really set itself apart from competitors with. And also be able to market itself much more seriously as a compelling health device. I don't think it would ever be able to tell you your actual blood pressure, but I think it will be able to tell you that your blood pressure, for example, is trending up or trending down, and then encourage you to actually so speak to a doctor. It's not actually going to be professional. Yeah, because I mean, the, the amount of uh, paperwork and the amount they must have to go through to because you're talking about people's health, so they must have to go through an extreme amount of legislation to get to the point of actually putting it to market. I'd have thought. Because people are yes. going to take the information, as I know you just made the point that it's not a professional device, but nonetheless, you and I, the layman, we know what the public will do. They'll see that and think, oh, my blood sugar's fine. I don't need to see anybody. So it's critically important they get it at least fairly accurate, isn't it? And of course, they need to get regulatory approval in each individual country as well. Of course. So it takes them a very long time. Mm. With features like ECG and blood oxygen, it's taken them an extremely long time to get those sorts of features approved. In, in many countries, um, the blood oxygen features are not, are not approved. Apple is not allowed to give you notifications about your blood oxygen level in many countries. Mm. So they, they do face those restrictions. And that's why it's more than likely that when they do implement these features, they won't give you exact measurements. They will just give you an indication of a trend which will be a trade-off, but still an extremely um, interesting and compelling use case when it comes to trying to imagine where this sort of device fits into your lifestyle. And you spoke of legislation. Funny enough, that's something I wrote about this week when I was talking about they're nearly 50 years old now. And if Wozniak and Jobs could have seen where the company is now, they, their legal department must almost be as busy as their R&D department because they're constantly in some kind of battle with the EU or now with American Congress, because they've jumped onto the USB-C bandwagon as well, haven't they? And I know they spend millions in the States on lobbying each year, but even so, it seems that the net is closing down on Apple to conform to the trade norms, it, uh, because it's all but passed now in the EU, isn't it? All but. I think it's just rubber stamped. Effectively, it just needs to it just needs to come into force. It needs to be uh, given a, a final level of approval, and then once it hits the statute books, I think it comes into effect within twenty days. Mm. So it'll be toward the end of this year. Um, I think that the regulatory situation that Apple is finding itself in is incredibly perilous, and I don't think that most people, even in terms of the media that is following Apple, have even begun to fathom. How severely this is, uh, how, how much of a brutal battle this will be, and how severely this is going to affect the company. It's going to s challenge Apple's entire business model. Mm. And that is coming from a huge number of countries. If it was just the EU, people cynically say, well, Apple would just pull out of the EU. Well, it wouldn't, because it's also the UK, it's South Korea. Um, there, there's movement in the United States, even. Um, they're not going to pull out of the United States. So, Are you speaking specifically of the legal battle with regard to USB-C or just the legal battles generally that are going on? I mean, I know, of course, there was the App Store in the Netherlands as well, wasn't there? There was a whole payment system. Yes. I know they were like, talking there about the dating apps, but really that was just a, 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 a figurehead for the, the way that Netherlands weren't happy with the way that Apple were ring-fencing payments to their own payment methods within the App Store. So th that's what makes me feel it must be a quagmire for them each time they develop something, knowing how far they're going to get before they're ratified back and told, nope, this isn't going to pass mustard in this country and you've got to change this and so on. 
I think that's that's precisely the case. And there's this wave of legislation coming in that is looking to regulate things that have just never been regulated before, namely with USB-C, for a government to actually mandate how a device should be sold and what features a device should have for the good of consumers is, is pretty unheard of. Mm. Um, I mean, we're even hearing about it, it affects repairability. It affects what software the device will run. It affects um, even things like iMessage. Um, and whether that will be able to remain exclusive to iPhones and how far it needs to be interoperable with other services. It truly will affect every single one of Apple services, every element of its platforms and the hardware of its devices. And, and that's all coming. And it, it, the battles are really going to start toward the end of this year. And I think it's going to dominate headlines um, for, the, for the next uh, couple of years. Which is crazy, isn't it? Something as innocent as how we charge can make such a dent into the force that is Apple. Yes, which is why I think they're going to make the change anyway next mm. year. I think they they they've seen it coming, and they're not even going to fight it. They've got enough battles on their hands, and it's they, they can't justify not having USB C even by their own standards anymore. So it, it's a it's a natural change to make. USB C won't be the contentious battle. The contentious battles are going to be over um, things like the App Store and opening up Apple's very very closed ecosystem at the point where um, you they the governments are mandating Apple's individual services to be fully interoperable with other services is 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 it's just unheard of. Mm. And remind me, I want to mention Mac Pro before we finish, but that what we've been talking now of USB-C is a perfect segue into the next main thing I wanted to talk about, which is iPhone 14. We got to talk about iPhone 14 as it's the single biggest release of the year, of course. Now, with next year's phone, that will be the start, one would assume, of the next three-year super cycle. And I was yes. just wondering, is it coincidence that USB-C happens to arrive at the point of the next three-year super cycle? Or do you think this has been something Apple have had their eye on? for? I was thinking about this yesterday. It's almost too good to be true that as that next super cycle starts, the big selling point, without a doubt, will be we've got USB-C on our phones. It seems amazingly th- coincidental or lucky. Possibly, although I think Apple's plans have changed. Um, I think that for many years, Apple's vote was focused in the long term about a portless iPhone. Apple was very interested in wireless data transfer and wireless charging. And that's why they introduced MagSafe with the iPhone 12. That was supposed to be the first building block of that. But this technology really hasn't taken off. Um, the the the, so, so we're led to believe the technology that Apple is developing to transfer data wirelessly um, and even just for diagnostic use and for use in repairs, that port is really important. So to get rid of that, there's a lot of considerations mm. and it's fallen behind and they can't stick with Lightning forever. Lightning was introduced in 2012 and was supposed to be a port for 10 years. Well, it's 10 years this year. So it's it's time is up. It, it, it transfers at USB 2 speeds. speeds. Um, although... The, the thing I'm interested in related to what you're saying is it may be the 15 Pro that gets USB-C next year, but the standard 15 probably won't. Well, that would remain the lightning then. No, probably. So how would that I fit would with the EU situation and potentially I the believe States? Apple won't have to do it until 2024. So A year's it, grace. Would, it would line up perfectly 
um, with Apple's system of bringing features to the Pro lineup and then trickling it down. They need to be able to say when they first introduce USB-C that this is a, a feature for Pro customers who want to transfer large ProRes files off their devices. They can't say that about the standard models, so they need to be able to introduce it with the Pro models. Now, this is something else I've been thinking about. I'm by no means an engineer. I've got no knowledge of this, so you might be able to slap me down very quickly with this, but an SD card slot looks a very slim thing, fitting. Is it, given the fact that Apple are pushing and pushing how much more professional the camera side of this, we're talking about possibly 8K on the Pro phones this year, ProRes is already a thing. Data transfer is a big, big issue. I feel the pain. I think I mentioned to you, I still shoot my YouTube videos on an iPhone 12 and getting today's was a 20 gig file. And I had to use image capture through a lightning cable. I had enough time for lunch. But I mean, I was just wondering, in, as the phones are getting so big, so thick now, would there be room for an SD card slot on an iPhone of any kind? I don't know what the internals of an SD card reader are. There possibly would be, particularly with micro SD, considering mm. how, how small mm. that is. But I think that that's an element of control um, and user choice that Apple is not interested in providing. I think it's certainly a step in the right direction that they added the SD card slot back to um, the MacBook Max, Pros. Yeah. Um, and the Mac Studio as well, most recently. So they know that that's, that's a very important tool for creators. But on the iPhone, I, I, I can't see it happening in the short term, but maybe when, when we're looking at the iPhone 16, the iPhone 17, and we really are reaching, if we haven't already reached peak iPhone, we certainly will have by then. Maybe that would be an excellent feature to try and set those pro phones apart and really be able to show off their video credentials. Mm. So if we begin to look at some of the details that we think we know about this Autumn's phone, no mini, almost certainly, that's a thing of the past. Now, sales were just very poor on that, weren't they? Yes. Uh, sales of both the iPhone 12 mini and iPhone 13 mini were only accounting for about 5% of all Oof. iPhone sales, which is incredibly low. Tiny. Um, and Apple obviously wasn't expecting that because people have been clamoring supposedly online for a small flagship iPhone for years. So that was something that they perhaps didn't see coming, while sales of bigger phones um, for the last decade have only been going up. That's, that's why Apple moved away from the 4-inch display of the iPhone 5 and 5S in, in the beginning. Mm. It's because they knew the market was moving in this direction. So that's why this year we'll be expecting an all-new iPhone 14 Max in that large 6.7-inch size. Effectively, it will be the same display that is currently available on the iPhone 13 Pro Max. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be two screen sizes in this year's lineup, 6.1 and 6.7-inch. So you're going to have the 14, 14 Max, and then the Pro and Pro Max. And we're thinking price are going to start around about $799, aren't we, for the 14? Yes, and then the uh, the 14 Max will fit in quite nicely between between those two price points. Now, do you anticipate the chip shortage being a problem for them? This is clearly their biggest release of any calendar year. The iPhone conference release is huge, not as big as it used to be possibly, but still massive demand. Now, I understand, well, there seems to be countering arguments. I know that Kuo uh, Ming-Chi said that he thought the facilities in China were once again open. They can work for a lot longer hours and will play catch up and there will be a supply of chip. But others are saying it's still so far behind where it needs to be that maybe we'll only get the pros released at the first instance. What's your take? Because clearly it, is, it could be a worrying time for Apple. I think that the chip shortage won't affect the iPhone 
released this year for several reasons. The first is because the 14 models, the standard 14 and 14 Max, are going to continue to use the A15 15, chip. Yeah. They will have the same chip um, that the iPhone 13 does. So there need to be no production changes. And Apple has had plenty of time to ramp up production of an existing chip. And the A16 chip is going to be using the same fabrication process and manufacturing process as the A15 as well. It's going to be a little bit uh, sort of cheeky with the marketing with that because it's going to be a lot closer to the A15 um, than it will appear to be. Right. So, um, and Apple also books um, TSMC, its chip supplier, years in advance. And they are TSMC's main client. So they th those orders will be fulfilled, especially for something as important as the iPhone. It's in previous years, you think with the iPhone 12 in 2020, Apple was taken by surprise um, by the nature of what was happening to global supply chains. But this year, they're well aware of what's happened with the lockdowns. They're very, very cautious. And that's why they've been encouraging their suppliers to stockpile. They've been encouraging their suppliers to hire people um, well in advance and to ramp up production far earlier. So the bottlenecks in production at the moment seem to be with displays that are about four weeks behind. But basically, everything will launch on time as far as I'm aware. And you know better than I, what stage will the 14s be in at the moment by way of production? Will they have already gone into final production now? I believe that mass production of many of the components will begin toward the end of this month. It will depend based on which supplier um, is is uh, being used for different components. And so the 14 Max may not start till next month, but the 14 may start this month. Um, but they, they will certainly all be well into mass production by August. And this year, more than any year I can remember for a good while, they seem to be making a big demarcation between the non-pro and pro phones. The amount of features that they're very much highlighting, I mean, I know this is speculation, but it seems with reasonable certainty that obviously on the pros, the big change is going to be it, the notches going, we're getting the pill and hole or pill and what you, you know what I mean, for the cameras on the front, the notches yes. going. They're talking about titanium coming onto the Pro phones. They're talking about the 48 megapixel camera, again, only being for the Pro phones, which makes you wonder where they figure the non-Pro phones fit in because the pricing, there's a tip over point where there's not that much difference between getting the Max and the Pro. But there seems to be so much of a difference in what you're getting on the Pro phones. They're clearly trying to encourage you and lean you towards the Pro models. But why do you think they've gone the route of making such an obvious stance of saying, these are our pro phones, these are the flagship features? The camera, for instance, which is the main thing that people change phones for, that 48 megapixel camera, I understand to only be potentially coming to the pros. I think it's because they're for different audiences. And things like the the larger screen size for the 14 Max, very few people are going to be in the predicament of deciding whether they want a bigger display or additional features. because the bigger display on the 14 Max is targeted at people that are not really too worried about having the, the latest and greatest. They just want a phone with a big screen. Right, right. The 14 is designed to target the sort of average consumer that wants the wants an iPhone um, and is just, just walks into the Apple store and buys the latest model. Whereas the Pro phones are for enthusiasts and um, people such as ourselves that are a little bit more interested in the specifications. And I think generally the consumers quite easily sort themselves into those two categories. 
But particularly with the iPhone 12, the difference between, or even with the iPhone 11, the difference between the 11 and 11 Pro and 12 and 12 Pro was relatively small. Mm. And I think that did make it hard for consumers at times. So I think it's been a necessary thing for Apple to gradually increase the number of differences so that it is just easier for customers to be able to understand, oh, well, this one has the the, the bigger, better camera. And this one, you know, just takes a, a decent picture um, when I need it. And to be able to just understand the differences in those simple terms. In the tech space, certainly, of recent, there doesn't seem to be as much enthusiasm about the release of the 14. I I suppose there's been a precedent for that over the last year or so, but this year particularly, everyone seems almost melancholic about what's coming, that it's not really for me this year. Many are saying, if you've got the 13, even the 12, it's not really worth it. Wait for the 15. It just seems... I'm sure once we get to September, October and the phone is released, there will be a clamour as normal. But at the moment, it seems very flat, doesn't it? I think so, particularly with regards to the standard 14. I think the the 14 Pro will do fine on its own. It certainly has enough it can show off with its more rounded edges, slimmer bezels, replacing the notch, the new cameras on the back. There's, there's plenty to talk about, even the A16 chip. The 14 will have a harder time, especially since it's got the same chip. It will have the same notch. It will have the same display. It will look very, very, very it will look basically identical in the hand, unless there's some different color options. But there will still be some reasonable improvements. So there'll be battery life improvements. There may be a new Wi-Fi specification, perhaps those satellite emergency features that we touched on as well as minor camera improvements. The front-facing camera in particular um, is going to get autofocus and an improved depth of field. So if people that like to take selfies, you know, that that, that sort of audience for the, the, the standard phones, there are still some, um, some, some updates that make it worthwhile, I think. And of the satellite, it's a very niche area, but uh, you mentioned it in regard possibly to going along with Apple Watch. Again, it's been met with consternation. People saying, "Would you? Re- who's really going to care about it? It must be a very, very small niche of people. I don't want to keep using that word, but a very small group of people that are going to be concerned about having that. And who's going to, outside of us, who's going to understand what low-flying satellite technology on your phone really even means? I think it's something that people may find more useful than they expect, even if it's something that most people don't need to use. Simply, the way that it's expected to work is that when you're out of range of cellular signal, um, that you will be able to send uh, a limited number of characters in a grey bubble in a message to emergency services or, or to, to anyone you you like mm. under sort of emergency circumstances. And, and that could be just useful on a practical basis. Um, there's plenty of places, um, even in the UK, there's plenty of places with incredibly poor coverage. So it could be something as, as as useful as when your your car breaks down in the middle of nowhere and you you need to contact um, for uh, a recovery. It, mm-hmm. it, it could be more. It's, you don't necessarily have to be you know going across the desert for it to be useful. Am I not right in thinking that Apple have under another company name launched some satellites as well, which has given people reason to believe that this is almost certainly going to happen sooner rather than later? I believe they've invested in um, satellite companies and bought significant stakes that would suggest that they would be, you know, the, the first served client of such companies. But I'm not sure about actually launching their own Maybe. satellites. But the infrastructure seems to be there effectively. Now, Apple seems one of the most bulletproof companies globally, being a couple of trillion dollars worth now. 
Do you think the economic slowdowns, which, as I understand it, are fairly global, the, 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 the energy crisis is a global pressure that everyone's feeling, and I see regularly on Twitter even motorists over there moaning about the price of petrol, which we've always laughed at because petrol's been so cheap in America. Do you think Apple will notice any slowdown this year in their figures? I think it would be surprising if they were impervious to it. You know, they're just as vulnerable. Well, perhaps they aren't as vulnerable. Apple has not was not vulnerable during um, the coronavirus to the mm. impact of lockdowns mm. because people were still happy to buy devices. The problem um, this year is not Apple; it's its customers. Its customers are not going to be as happy to be going out and spending you know a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars on a brand new iPhone. So that that's going to be the main issue. But it may well work itself out in the end in the sense that it gives Apple time to overcome supply shortages. Because, of course, during, uh, I know, their, I believe their sale figures were an all-time high during lockdown, but it was a very odd and massaged period of our lives because many were on furlough, so those kind of getting this money for effectively not doing anything. I'm not meaning to be crass in the but you, you understand my drive. Yes. That they're sitting at home, plenty of time on their hands, money suddenly arriving in their bank account for not leaving the front door. Oh, well, I'm sure I'll go and buy another Mac. Now things are very different. Suddenly money's hemorrhaging out the door on fuel, on energy at home, you name it. Everyone's noticing it. Um, so I'm wondering, I, it was just something I was wondering about, whether they were too big to be rocked or whether they would, I mean, again, potentially with people saying, well, is the iPhone 14 for me or is it worth waiting a year, whether there would be an economic slowdown for them, particularly on the iPhone, not so much the Macs. I think the Macs are, are wonderful tools at the moment and they're, they're, they're putting rights their issues they've had for the last five, six years, and everyone's loving the Mac at the moment. But the phone, I just wonder if this year could see a little dip. I think it would be surprising if 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 that wasn't the case, just because customers don't have as much money in their pockets mm. this year. Mm. Where things will get interesting is how Apple responds to inflation. Because mm -hmm. will these iPhones, by the with the with the current rate of inflation, will they actually see a price increase that we haven't yet known about? That a lot can change in the next few months in terms of how Apple wants to price these things. Mm. Will will carriers, even if it's not Apple, will carriers be putting their prices up so much? Um, so th there's a lot of potential, even with Macs coming out towards the end of the year. Maybe the Mac Pro, maybe when we get second generation versions of the redesigned MacBook Pros. Are those going to be subject to a price hike? At some point, we've got to have another moment, like when the iPhone X was released and it was the first $1,000 phone. It's got to happen again. Mm -hmm. And before we get on to the last main subject I wanted to talk about with you, uh, which is going to be CarPlay, you just meant you're wonderful at leading me into the, the exact frame I want to talk about. Mac Pro. Now, it seems to have gone deathly quiet. We all are well aware of John Turner's back in the spring saying, that's for another day. It's been played so many times. It's gone very, very quiet, and they're getting perilously close towards the end of that two-year time stamp that they put on themselves to say we'd be totally free of Intel, be totally on Apple Silicon. What have you heard about the Pro? It's gone very, very quiet um, about the Mac Pro, and I don't know if that's just because they sell in relatively small volume, and they are therefore obviously manufactured in a smaller volume, so it's easier to keep lock, uh, leaks locked down. Um, I'm not. I'm not quite sure what's happened because, to me, the perfect event to have unveiled it would have been WWDC. Absolutely. After all, the last two Mac Pros were unveiled at that time. It was more for a professional mm. audience, definitely more than the MacBook Air was. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure it fits very well in with an iPhone event. I'm not sure quite how things line up. I mean, they, they're definitely running out of time to unveil this device, as you say, and before long, we're going to be looking at 
um, a whole new selection of M2 chips, and Apple Silicon is is really moving along. So I think we will see it within this time frame, even if it's just um, an unveiling or just an announcement, because the Mac Pro typically takes quite a long time to ship after they announce it. So it may well be that it doesn't end up shipping until next year, but we certainly should see it by November. Like you, I was thinking that you know it had gone very, very quiet and it surely wouldn't want an event by itself, but equally wouldn't be a press release. I mean, it's, it's their flagship machine, albeit at very limited numbers, very high-end users. It's almost the epitome of what Apple first was all about, wasn't it, for the high-end creators achieving everything you need. So there'll always be a place for the Mac Pro. But then, as you say, with, with M1 now having lived its cycle, do they put a beefed-up four-time M1 in there? Is it going to be M2 in there? I'm sure they've got it mapped out, but I hadn't heard anything about it at all. And equally, you're saying it's it's been quiet as well. Yes, it has been. Although I think that a lot of what to expect with the Mac Pro is is not sort of exciting people because I think we know what we're getting with Apple Silicon at this point. We know what sort of performance we can expect from an Apple Silicon Mac Pro. And we know that the only thing that's going to set it apart from the Mac Studio is basically modularity and its selection mm. of ports. Mm. We know it's quite likely it's going to stick with the design or at least a vaguely similar design to what we've got now, even if it's a slightly more compact version. So how, how much more can you really do with the Mac mm. Pro? It's sort of the people that, that, are, that will be interested in buying it um, know what to expect. And on to our final subject for this podcast, CarPlay. Now, it's something I know you've written about. You've written about it on Mac Rumors. I was looking at that uh, article, that blog today. So it's something we're both interested in, clearly. Um, I've got a car that is CarPlay enabled, but at the moment, CarPlay is fairly basic. It's My car's via Lightning Cable. I believe there are certain cars that are Wi-Fi enabled. Mine, you still have to plug it in via Lightning, which is really annoying because I've got a wireless charging facility in the car as well, but I can't use that because I have to use the mm. lightning cable. And effectively, if people haven't used CarPlay, it's, it's an elaborate way of using some apps on your car's display. So podcasts, radio, basically entertainment, very clever the way Siri reads out your messages to you and you can apply via voice as well. But of course, now, as of WWDC and what they're expecting to begin to roll out from 2024, the integration is getting far deeper within the car system, isn't it? Yes, we're expecting CarPlay for the first time to be able to be a sort of end-to-end -end experience in the car. At the moment, if you use your reversing camera or you want to access uh, climate controls or you want to uh, look at fuel levels on a, on a driver's display, all of this has to be done through the car's um, infotainment system. Um, but now, the whole system can be run through CarPlay. That's the that's the big change here, so that you would effectively never need to leave it, which is a pretty big change um, from what CarPlay yeah. was was originally styled as. And I think it it doesn't bode well for the Apple Car. I think that that is an indication that that may be a lot further out than people expect, because this is now a full in car experience. Well, there's, there's some areas I wanted to cover with this with you. I know there's a conference going on this week, the Hub Berlin Tech Conference, and was it yes. Herbert Dies, who's this? Is he the CEO of Volkswagen? Yes, that's right. And he was on stage as, as saying that he doesn't think Apple will ever actually make a car. It's just a step too far. I don't know. There was Lisa Jackson who was representing Apple at the same conference, um, but it, it's clearly Dies, who's very much involved in the car 
business feels that it's just a step too far to walk in cold and make a brand new car? Well, Apple would definitely need help from a lot of existing companies. Apple Apple would rely on existing car suppliers to manufacture many of its components. And to be able to, to create uh, an electric self-driving car with a sort of end-to-end um, software and hardware experience is definitely a tall order, which is why we know they've had so many development problems. They're definitely working on one, but whether one ever sees the light of day, I don't know. I think the, the launch of this new CarPlay system, um, which seems to sort of... It, if there was now an Apple car, it would cannibalize sales of that car. So it it just suggests that it must be years out. I think the current uh, mass production goal is 2025. I think there's virtually no chance of that at this point. We see, I had a flight of fancy the other day, and it's probably I spent too much time indoors or some such, but I had this thought, and it may be that it's got no legs in it at all, but it, I saw that it could almost buy Apple the perfect time. They could introduce this complete interface, this complete car system as a, when you go into your dealership, it's a checkbox. You say, do you want Apple car? Yes, bang. They, I would imagine then the dealers would have a license fee. They charge you X thousand pounds for having it in your car. They're then recouping their money from Apple for licensing out. And in that period of time, Apple can sort out any bugs, all those launch problems that every kind of major software gets under somebody else's brand. In that time, they're integrating themselves further, I told you it's a flight fancy, further and further into the car manufacturing system. And hopefully in that time, also find somebody they feel in great synergy with to actually help them produce their car. Does that sound a stage too far to you? I I just saw it as almost, it was was so comprehensive. What are they going to do with this? Are they going to be, Apple always like to have the end game to themselves. And if they can possibly have everything under one roof, that's their utopia, isn't it? So I was just wondering if this was a way of, because you can do as much development as you want, but this would give them hands-on nuts and bolts experience in the automotive industry. I think it's a very good point that it would certainly engage people a little bit more with CarPlay and make people who are in the car market, if they've had this next generation CarPlay experience, be a lot more likely to buy an Apple car. The problem I think comes is Apple will end up competing with cars running its own system. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure how that would work. I mean, it's the equivalent of if um, Mac OS was available for Windows machines or iOS was available for Android devices. It's a very messy situation that Apple doesn't seem to like to do. And the fact that they are now really going for it, they're, they're offering effectively a whole in-car operating system, um, suggests that I don't think they will compete with themselves. Because Android, I'm not sure. I mean, they're clearly still working on the on the on the the whole vehicle. So it's very strange. It doesn't quite make sense to me. Android do have a system that's very similar. I understand. I know desperately little about the Android world, but I, when I was reading something this week, I believe Android have already got. I don't think is it called Android CarPlay or there's a, there's a system Android got, Auto or that's right, which is a fully integrated system again, isn't it? Yes, it's it's effectively Android's equivalent of CarPlay, and no doubt Android will now move to effectively offer this next generation experience, so that um, you know automaker customers can just choose whether they want the Android in-car operating system or, or Apple's, and car makers can really pare back their own infotainment systems. But I think car makers will be wary because they know that Apple is developing a car. It's, 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 a, it's just like the headset. It's an open secret in the industry. I mean, Apple literally has a, you know, a, like a, a driving course in the, middle of, in the middle of the desert that they use to test the car. They can't, they can't hide it forever. All of their, they're not hiring people from Ford and from Tesla for no reason. Um, 
And in light of that, automakers will be cautious about putting someone who will be a future competitor directly into the heart of all their vehicles, because I think they know, as you say, that consumers will be very, very tempted by that experience. That's why I can't make out the strategy at this point. And do you think that's why it's been relatively slow in manufacturers coming on board and saying, yes, we'll take that on straight away? Because the uptake, I mean, Lexus, for instance, and BMW have always been two of the front runners. And both of those certainly weren't mentioned on the speech at at, uh, WWDC that they were coming on board from day one. Yes, I thought that was strange. I thought that a lot of the the announcements of the individual brands um, was was strange and indicated that there are those problems mm. um, in terms of getting people to sign up. I mean, Apple tried to say that brands will retain their brand identity, which I thought was interesting because they obviously were cautious about this. So um, automakers will be able to choose how the color of things and maybe the font weight and uh, you know they can plaster their own logo on it. But just very, very unusual for Apple to be developing an operating system for other other hardware effectively. Have you heard there how must much, be a longer term strategy? Have, do you, are you aware if they're putting much money into this project, or was it one of those uh, uh, headline announcements to make because it was of interest and looked fantastic? But are you aware they actually putting hard dollars into it? In terms of the next generation CarPlay, it completely came out of nowhere. Mm. It was it was such a tremendous surprise, and even it's, it was slightly bizarre that they announced it, considering that it's not even going to be um, available pretty much until twenty twenty four. I mean, by then, iOS seventeen will already be publicly released, so it's unusual to to announce it at such an early stage. So I I think that the the resources for this must be coming to some extent from the Apple Car project. Really, the the whole Apple Car project is is a real mystery, considering just how many problems they've they've had with it. They've now got the the executive that was behind the Apple Watch and getting the Apple Watch in line in charge of the car project, which suggests they're very serious mm. about it. But the amount we hear month after month after month about problems with the self driving system, they're constantly losing people that are working on the team, and they are struggling to get the talent. So they've got so many hoops to go through. Even with suppliers, the a terribly large amount of unreliability. They were supposed to be working with Hyundai, but then Hyundai publicly said, oh, we're working with Apple on the Apple car. So then uh, obviously Apple pulled out of that one. So it's incredibly messy, the situation with the Apple car at the moment. And of course, no matter how far Apple developed CarPlay, you still need the cars to be able to use it and run it. So you, you know, you're still going to have to change your car because none of the cars we have at the moment, I think there's one or two that have got the wraparound dashboards that are going to be required because you need a multi-screen experience to be able to use it to its fullest extent, don't you? Uh, and then I understand it to be very personalizable as well. So you can have your music on one screen, the car systems on another screen, calendars, widgets I've heard are even a possibility. So clearly it's a very, they want to immerse you into making the, the, the cockpit of the car feel very much yours. And I think that's going to be part of its appeal, I guess. Yes, definitely. They're taking what they've learned about what consumers like about widgets in iOS 14 and how they've iterated on this in iOS 15 and iOS 16, even with lock screen widgets. And they're bringing that to the car because they know that that's going to to really engage people, even with Mm. the gauge cluster, the level of customization they're giving people. And yet, of course, being perfectly integrated with all of the apps on your phone, they know they've got the perfect recipe. It's just, it's very, uh, it's very, um, if I was an automaker, I would be very suspicious. And uh, lastly, I was just interested to know at Mac Rumors betas. Do you have you downloaded the betas of, of iOS sixteen at the moment? Are you already running them? 
yes, I, I, I am. Uh, I was cautious to do so. Do you put them on your main device? Had... Or? This year, I have um, not on my not on my main Mac though. I wouldn't. I, I, I couldn't really uh, <laughs> risk bugs, you know, day to day when working. So everything except for the main Mac. Uh, most years, I, I don't, uh, especially this early on. I might get on the the public beta a little bit later on, but they seem to be surprisingly stable this year. Um, I've heard that. I. I've I've had some problems with my iPhone getting incredibly hot, mm-hmm. um, and the, the the battery life uh, being hemorrhaged. In particular, it tends to get hot when charging, and then stops charging because it gets too hot. So it's a <laughs> bit of a vicious cycle. Uh, but such is the nature of running betas. So you're running beta on your iPad. Yes, I am. And how are you finding Stage Manager? I am conflicted about Stage Manager because it's excellent for running multiple apps, mm-hmm. but the way that you you manage the windows feels very unnatural and I can't quite get my head around how to use it. And really, as someone that's immersed in all this stuff every all day, every day, I should I of all people really should be able to understand, understand how it. to use this. And hour after hour of trying to use Stage Manager, I just can't understand why it's more useful other than to have more windows. But even when you have multiple windows, they seem to float around a lot and change shape and it doesn't seem very reliable. It's not as precise as using a Mac. And so I always end up finding myself just returning to a Mac. And it, I, I haven't got the beta downloaded, but it, it appears that it uses quite a lot of real estate to the left of the screen. And that's not movable, is it? It has to be, for whatever reason, to the left of the screen. And it looks like you're losing a lot of estate. When you move the windows over to that side of the display, they hide, um, I believe, or I might be getting confused with the version for Mac. Right. Um, but the whole system is very confusing because it's coexisting with split screen um, spaces on the iPad as well. And the way that you can only have four stage manager windows open at a time, or stage manager spaces, I should say, mm-hmm. um, you can't control what those are. And apps that you previously had open in split screen um, are often only available uh, in the stage manager view, even if you didn't select them to be like that. I'm probably con- already confusing listeners and confusing you with that, but you can see my point is that it really is quite a hard thing to get your head around. One simple question, I mean, you can quite possibly help me, this one simple point I couldn't quite grasp is if you've got four or five windows open, do you decide which stack they go into? Or does Apple say, well, look, they're both browsers, so we're going to put Chrome and Safari into one stack and Notes and Pages into another stack? Does it do that for you? Intuitively? No, you have full control. So whatever, it effectively, it centers an app to start with. And then you can drag up from the dock or from the app library any other windows you'd like to include in that space. And then if you open another app by itself without dragging it, you just tap it in the dock. That will open up a new stage manager view. And then you can drag up whatever you like for that. Right. So I suppose that makes sense. But it is it is hard to get your head around. It is very different to working on the Mac. And it definitely is not uh, an easy thing to use. It's useful if you need multiple applications open at the same time, but beyond that, it's quite a headache, I feel. And do you feel it will appease iPad users that have been clamoring for more usability from their pro devices? Do you think Stage Manager will go some way to appeasing those people? I think that it depends on the on the on the kind of people, really. I mean, some people will not be happy until the iPad is literally running macOS mm-hmm. and has macOS style window management, and and that's just not going to happen. For a, for and that's a really a whole separate discussion. 
But if you're the sort of person that has never been quite satisfied with slide over, the ability to just pull another app open um, from the left-hand side of the screen, from the right-hand side of the screen, and then you can move it wherever you like as on a sort of sliding tile. Um, if you need to have four applications open and have fully resizable windows, then it is good for that. And it's especially good for external displays. We, we really should mention that um, the, the key benefit of Stage Manager is that it really does open up the ability to use an external display properly with the iPad for the first time. It's in proper resolution so, this time, isn't it? Yes, it can run in up 6K and you can move windows between the iPad and the main display. Um, it, it feels a lot more like a Mac-like experience now when plugging your iPad into to an external display. I'm just not convinced about the implementation for now. So almost if you get to the office and you plug your iPad Pro into your monitor, then you've got almost what people were asking for in a Mac OS kind of feel and situation. Yes, it really does mean that you can you can get work done properly if you need to have lots of windows open. You know, I've never been able to to work on an iPad simply because I just need too much open at one time. Mm -hmm. But now, what with being able to have eight windows open at once across two displays, it definitely is possible. It's just very very strange the way that when you click an app in the dock, it opens up this whole new view when you expect it to open up in the space you're in. So it's 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 using such fundamentally different um, uh, gestures and, and a way to use the system that uh, it definitely will take a lot of getting used to. And it definitely needs more iteration as well. I almost need to buy an iPad now just to try this out, don't I? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it is a fun one to try. Yeah, I've not got a professional... I've only got an iPad mini, and even that's a couple of years old, and I just use it for content consumption. It, iPad has always been one of those things that's never really figured a place that I think I would use it, but I'm wondering if it's one of those things, if I had a pro, whether I'd find, oh, okay, when I'm away from the desk, it's actually much more convenient to sit and work on an iPad than trying to work with a laptop. I don't know. I think that's the predicament most people find themselves in. I think that even almost, I'd say almost all iPad Pro customers bought it with the hope that they would use it more than they do. I know that's definitely my experience. So I don't think you, you'd be missing out. But if it's the case that you want to be able to do a bit of content consumption, a bit of reading, a bit of YouTube um, and stream some video, but then you'd like the ability to reply to emails a bit more easily on, on the go, then the iPads um, could be a, a pretty useful tool, but it's not a Mac replacement yet. It really is supposed to complement your Mac. And if you can make that work, then it's incredibly useful. But if you're looking for a Mac replacement, definitely now more than ever, it's capable of it, but uh, it's not quite gone the full, the full distance yet. And because I'm not very clever at self-promotion, I'm going to talk about your podcast, Mac Rumors. It was a really good show this week, a really good show. You had Ian Zelbo, the renders artist, a very gifted young creator on with you, didn't you? You and Dan had the pleasure of talking to Ian during the course of that show. Yes, it was a, it was a great discussion. It was really interesting because Ian is responsible for so many of these um, early looks at, at products that that, um, that we're expecting to get, and because they are they are of a quality that's almost indistinguishable from what Apple actually makes. So, for example, earlier we were talking about the the flat Apple Watch. Well, Ian is responsible for our our vision. Our of vision. So it's it was it was great to sort of get get a sense of. Um, how he does that and his process because he turns them around incredibly quickly and uh, I'm sort of quite in awe of uh, people talent. that are able to do that that sort of thing. So, And I think one of his um, finest pieces work, I'm assuming you've probably seen the new sets for John Frost's front page tech and that's all Ian's work, isn't it? Yes, yes. He works very closely with John Prosser. Is that the iPhone 14 Pro rumours? Uh, no, I mean, no, the whole set behind John. Oh, oh, yes. That, that's actually Ian's renders, isn't it? I heard John talking about that. That whole thing we're looking at is 
Oenda. That's not a set. It's just, it blows my mind. You look at that. I was watching it last night and it's just stunning that Ian has basically drawn that set. It's mind-blowing. Obviously a very talented, gifted uh, artist. So that's on Mac Room is your podcast, which goes out weekly, doesn't it? Uh, now, yes, we're trying to get into sort of a, a weekly routine for it. We were previously doing about once every two weeks, but now every week. Um, and we're hoping to get some uh, some more interesting guests soon. Hopefully Ross Young very soon, once he's, uh, once he's feeling well, better. Well again, yep. And um, you, as of course you, Dan and Sammy that are together on that podcast, isn't it? Yes. So just the uh, the three of us, Sammy is uh, away at the moment. So it's just Dan and I sort of uh, manning the force at the moment. And uh, we'll have some some very interesting guests soon. So definitely your your listeners should, should uh, subscribe as well. It's available, of course, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify with the normal platforms. And uh, yeah, it's an essential listen. I think it comes out on a Wednesday or Thursday. And I always love that. It's a really, really good listen. I know you've been instrumental in bringing that to Mac Rumors. And it's a real uh, something you should be very, very proud of. It's, it's a very informative show. That's the great thing about it. You can pick out a lot of great information from it. So, And it does seem to be vacation season over in America. It seems it's only us Brits that are still working. Everyone I speak to in the <laughs> States via Twitter, I'm on vacation now. So clearly end yeah. of June, beginning of July, it's the time they all leave the office. So uh, yes, you and me holding the fort for a couple of days. <laughs> I'm going to let you get on with your weekend now. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us again. I, I will promise not to try to trouble you again within the next two weeks. I promise. No, that's uh, all right. And don't forget to check out Hartley over on Twitter at Hartley Charlton, uh, Hartley Charlton on Twitter. And you've got your website as well, of course, which is HartleyCharlton.com. Hartley, thank you so much for joining us. It's been enlightening as ever. And uh, I hope when you do get some holiday, you enjoy yours as well this summer. Thank you for having me. Lovely. Wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so much. And I really do owe Hartley a massive great thank you. He only had a few hours to get ready for this podcast, but uh, the man has so much knowledge. It's always a pleasure to have him back on Minus 16. Hartley, thank you very much indeed. Don't forget to check him out on his wonderful, wonderful Mac Rumors podcast, which we mentioned on the uh, interview there. And you'll find that, of course, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and it is out weekly. And you can find him over on Twitter as well. And if you want to catch up with me in between podcasts and the best way of doing that is via my website, talkingtechandaudio.com. Of course, you can catch me on Twitter too, which is at DTalkingTech. I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks with a guest, I hope. <laughs> Not going to say who because that will doom things, but I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for sure with another Minus 16. Have yourselves a lovely fortnight and I'll see you very, very soon.